Welcome to our podcast, I Love You. I know. My name's Amanda. And I'm Kevin. This is our podcast about love, marriage, and Star Wars. But honestly, it's mostly about Star Wars. And so we've gone through episodes four and five of the original trilogy. And today we're, we're going to wrap it up with episode six, Return of the Jedi. Kevin, let's talk about this. Sounds good. This is really the ending that we all wanted. With I would say there's a little bit of cheese factor, but really it's more satisfying than it is cheesy. How would you weigh in? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think this is, you know, sort of uh, indicative of the time. And it's also sort of one of the more satisfying sort of story roundouts in, um, you know, the entire Star Wars franchise. And we'll talk about the end when we get to the end. But um, yeah, this is a, a pretty good wrap up of the original trilogy. Agreed. So just to do a little high level of, of what we're going to hit here, it's another three-act format again. We start in Tatooine. It's a desert planet. It's basically where it all started with, with Luke there. Um, it's We have an overly elaborate plot to get Han back that we watch unfold on Tatooine. Then Act 2 is a preparation for and the landing on Endor and there are two things simultaneously happening at this time Luke goes back to Dagobah and then everything on Endor before this actual battle begins and then our final battle is you know act three and there's actually three battles within act three so I don't know if that brings some kind of symmetry to the whole situation or if it's just a coincidence or it's just because we needed to have all three but we have Luke turning himself in um, we have the Battle of Endor to destroy the Death Star, uh, it's, and that's the three-fight sequence, you know, the three within Act 3. So to get us started on, on Tatooine, you know, this is by far the most convoluted plot they could have come up with. They have Han frozen in carbonite, and they risk the most high-level people within the Rebellion to get one guy who was previously a smuggler. Yeah, Jabba the Hutt, he is a crime lord. He's kind of that Al Capone of this part of uh, the Outer Rim. He bought Han Solo from Boba Fett, and he's still frozen in carbonite. He hangs him on the wall like a decoration, probably a reminder to other people not to cross him. And yeah, we send in everybody. We send in Leia, Chewie, Lando, R2-D2, C-3PO, eventually Luke Skywalker, all to rescue Han Solo. And it's really interesting. Apparently, Luke concocts this plan, and the plan starts with sending Lando in sometime in advance. This this whole thing takes place about six months after the end of Empire Strikes Back. So Lando sort of gets a job as a security guard in Jabba's palace. He's just one of those random guys hanging out at Jabba's palace. There's, for those of you who've seen the movie, start rewatch it and pay attention to how many people are literally hanging out in a crime lord's operation. Because when I think of you know, our, our gangs and, you know, crime lords, they only let their people in. It's, I can't just walk in and hang out. So th this seems like kind of an unusual setup. Yeah. And, and I mean, some of that is that Jabba just, he has a lot of random people that he pays to do random things. And they're just all sort of always hanging around his place, I guess. Looking for work? I guess so. But so Lando is sort of set up already there when the movie starts. The next ones to show up are Leia disguised as a bounty hunter, and she's bringing Chewbacca as a bounty, and she sells Chewbacca to Jabba the Hutt. He gets thrown in prison, and she gets to hang out in Jabba's lair, which I guess kind of makes sense to get them both there. But then if you think about, and, and then I guess C-3PO and R2-D2 show up. They're gifts. Yeah. 
and that's the thing that really rubs me the wrong way is they're sent as gifts from Luke Skywalker to Jabba the Hutt and I mean it's essentially these are two sentient beings just because they happen to be droids or robots or whatever you want to call them they're sentient beings being sold or traded again there's a very lackadaisical appreciation for the value of sentient life within the galaxy and Luke seems very comfortable trading with people or droids that have gotten him to where he's at yeah i think this is this is sort of one of those like unexplored uh philosophical or ethical uh discussions about star wars that we should probably get into in more detail but meanwhile r2d2 and c3po are now in jabba's palace sold you know basically sold to jabba the hut um leia and chewie are there and it's not entirely clear what the whole plan is. Um, R2-D2 delivers a message where Luke Skywalker claims to be a Jedi Knight and asks to bargain to buy Han Solo back from Jabba. And so, again, very convoluted plot. Like, are they planning to buy him? Are they planning to fight their way out? What are they planning to do? It's not really clear. And then Leia screws everything up. Yeah, and, and this is where, again, I don't know if this was part of the plan or if Leia is just freelancing at this point, but Leia decides that in the middle of the night, she's going to free Han from the Carbonite. I don't know, try to escape. But if you think about it, if she escapes with him, that's going to leave poor Chewbacca in prison, R2-D2 and C-3PO as robot slaves, and Lando just like holding the bag stuck there, right? So I don't know if this was part of the plan or if Leia was just decided that she loved Han enough that she was just going to get out of there. This is not a very good plan. Especially when you think like basically Leia's entire life from the time that she was probably more than about five years old until present day, she has been a fighter she's been part of the rebellion her family was in the rebellion that's everything she knows and the fact that she's willing to risk it it just makes you think that this is probably part of the plan is that in order for luke to show up at han needs to be unfrozen so again i still don't know what she thinks that they're gonna do or if she's betting on jabba not killing her and han and chewbacca after she you know thaws out Han I'm not really sure what the plan is but it's extremely complex and it's not really that bright that's right and then finally Luke Skywalker does show up and he walks into the room unarmed and starts you know sort of threatening Jabba and again it's not really clear what his plan is especially when he force grabs a blaster and tries to shoot Jabba in a room full of you know sort of Jabba sycophants so it's a very weird plan. Ultimately, we also see Luke use uh, Jedi mind tricks too, and yeah. Jabba's like, "Yeah, that's not going to work on me." Right. And actually, one of the more interesting things that, again, I, you know, Star Wars at this time hadn't really lo- developed the level of sophistication and nuance that we've come to expect from it now. But as Luke is passing into Jabba's palace, he force chokes two of Jabba's guards. And apparently this isn't a real problem for anybody. It's okay for him to him to use that particular technique. I think in sort of the modern Star Wars universe, were a light side person to use the force choke technique, it would be considered fairly problematic. Agreed, agreed. I, I think part of that also stems from the fact that Luke really doesn't have other Jedi to train with or learn from. And so he's got this power and he's going to use it. And I, I think we can see that, um, you know, again, we're going to try to avoid too many spoilers for... Uh, 
things that are more recent content but Mandalorian there's some activity that it seems like maybe if a mentor was involved these actions wouldn't be taken Quite. so I, I think that is something that we can explore later in other Star Wars media yeah but sort of jumping ahead on this whole plot um, everybody gets captured as usual and they get sentenced by Jabba the Hutt to be executed by being thrown into the pit of Carcoon, the nesting beast of the almighty Sarlacc, which Han doesn't think is such a big deal until he points out that in its belly you will be digested over the course of a thousand years. That's not great. You don't want that. It's like, you know, the 1960s Batman. It's a borderline easily escapable plot. Why wouldn't you just, you know, kill them now? Why but. Yeah, Jabba likes to kill for entertainment. That's definitely part of his whole thing. He Is that why everyone's still hanging out at Jabba's palace to see who they can watch die in the most horrific possible way? Among other things, yes. Interesting. Uh, and then also he uh, very exploitative of women. So, you know, the legendary brass bikini. We've got poor Leia um, objectified like that. There are other women whose names I don't know. Kevin, do you know there? The, uh, the dancer. There is the dancer named Ula. So Ula is a Twi'lek, uh, like stripper dancer who dances for Jabba. Interesting sort of production side note on the movie. In the original, uh, she does a little bit of a dance. Jabba is displeased with her. He drops her into the rancor pit. In the special edition, they added a song to the whole Jabba the Hutt sequence, which was completely unnecessary. And this is all the time I want to spend saying, talking about it. I don't want to break it down. It was just unnecessary. But to make that scene work, they needed a few additional dance sequences from Ula, they found the same actress uh, about, what was it, 20 years later, right. um, and had her do additional dances, and she was still in such great shape and looked virtually the same, especially under the makeup, that nobody noticed, and they thought that it was like deleted footage until they came out and said, nope, that was her doing new dances. That's really cool. Yeah, good for her. Yeah, so moral of the story, stay physically fit and you never age? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right, so they have to escape. We've got this final battle on Tatooine. So walk us through what happens there. Right, so um, Luke kind of threatens Jabba one more time, which Jabba finds hilarious, and so should we all. Um, and then R2-D2 launches a lightsaber out of his dome into Luke's hand, and then that sort of kicks off a little mini battle where we have our standard skirmishes. Um, Boba Fett makes his probably most famous appearance, He's not in the fight for very long. He ends up being eaten by the Sarlacc. Um, Han, who was blinded by being in Carbonite for some reason, gets his, his sight back, rescues Lando. And basically, our heroes end up flying off on a little sail barge while uh, Leia and Luke fire a big cannon into Jabba's main sail barge kill after Leia strangles Jabba and basically kills Jabba and all of the hundreds of people on his sail barge as part of their escape. So another moral of the story, don't hang out with bad guys. Yeah, if you hang out with bad guys and then the good guys show up, you're going to be collateral damage and no one's going to feel bad for you. Yeah, not so much. I, I mean, there's a lot of collateral damage there, but really we don't feel bad for him here. We don't. In the Blu-ray release of this movie, there is a deleted scene that shows Luke arrived early on Tatooine, visited Obi-Wan Kenobi's old house on Tatooine, and found some literature that taught him how to build a new lightsaber and that's where and when he builds his green lightsaber that's a good point because if we remember at the end of empire his lightsaber is gone and so he walks in and while he's not actually holding it r2d2 is 
So that, that kind of explains where Luke and the droids have been for a little while because obviously he has to build it and give it to R2-D2 to take into Jabba's palace. Um, it also explains why there's additional material that Luke is able to use to learn more about the Force because, you know, he's pretty much the last of the Jedi or so we think. Um, there's, you know, an old Yoda, you know, there's Force Ghost Obi-Wan and, you know, there's... The living force but luke's not really smart enough to be a part of that yet not yet so so that that ends the first act right yeah basically so they escape jabba's palace and everybody other than luke gets on the millennium falcon and flies toward the rebel fleet to catch back up with everyone and luke says he needs to go visit yoda one more time yeah he's got to go see an old friend that's right so what's interesting is you said that about six months have passed between the end of Empire and beginning of Jedi, but, you know, Yoda was pretty spry in Empire, and now we see him fade real fast. So, you know, I don't know if that's a reflection of what's happening within the Force is so stressful to Yoda, or if he just put on a really good show in Empire, or... It's just a non sequitur that we just don't get explained. But here's a very old man Yoda. Yeah, and, and I think this goes kind of to um, a thing that happens with a lot of Jedi Masters throughout the, throughout the series overall is once they have accomplished sort of their big moment in their life and they have passed on their mantle to the next generation, then one way or another they join the they join with the cosmic force they move on and so yoda having trained luke as much as he was ever going to train him um it's time for him to move on and and as he points out he deserves some rest um and uh and so he gives sort of a final talk to luke um luke claims the title of jedi and and yoda says no you're not a jedi until you face darth vader one more time which Luke is hesitant to do because at this point he he knows and accepts that Darth Vader is his father. Um, and Yoda says it's unfortunate that Vader mentioned that he was Luke's father. Uh, I think Yoda was hopeful that this information wouldn't come to light. Yeah, and and I think, you know, at this point, Yoda is uh, sort of in the same camp as Obi-Wan Kenobi where, you know, there's truth and then there's truth that people need to know. And I think that he would prefer Luke to enter into his final battle with a clear head. Uh, Yoda had, of course, intended for Luke to kill both Darth Vader and the Emperor um, and purge the Sith and, you know, redeem his failure. And I think that he feels that Luke knowing that Darth Vader is his father is going to reduce the chances that he does that or cause him to hesitate and maybe cause him to lose. And so he says that it's unfortunate that Luke learned this before he was ready and Luke is sort of appalled at the fact that he wasn't told the truth. And one of the things that you mentioned is that Luke says that he, he's a Jedi and Yoda says, no, not yet. You still have to face Vader. Well, Yoda doesn't say it in so many words. Luke, you know, gets to that. And it's important to kind of go back to what it meant before the Sith came to power and were kind of hanging out in the background when we had the Jedi Council and we had Padawans that would you know, do their training and eventually sit for the Jedi trials. So the, this is kind of the equivalent of that before Luke can truly be a, a Jedi Knight. But he's calling himself that and we he needs to do his, his final battle. Um, so the, the debate is, is he going to kill Vader or is he going to save Vader? And you can see the, the conflict on Luke's face. 
Uh, Yoda gives a death speech. He basically tucks himself into bed and, you know, says goodbye to Luke um, and very slowly uh, cracks out the words, there is another Skywalker. Uh, he probably could have said it far more clearly. He could have, you know, been less ambiguous about it, but he tells us there's another Skywalker. Yeah, I think just straight up telling him um, Leia is your sister has fewer syllables than there is another Skywalker. And since Luke finds out in the very next scene that that is the truth, seems like Yoda could have just said that. <laughs> he could have. That said, I mean, his speech patterns aren't always the most efficient. So. So Obi-Wan shows up as a force ghost after Yoda, you know, passes. And, you know, Luke calls him out on, you know, what's essentially what he views to be his BS. And that, you know, wh why didn't you tell me these things? What What's happening? Like, what's going on? You knew the whole time. Why didn't you tell me? Uh, why did you lie to me about, you know, my father that he died in the Clone Wars or that Vader killed him? Why did he say, why didn't you just say my dad was Vader? And Obi-Wan says it, it's true from a certain point of view. And I, I think that's an important thing to look back at is that if the Jedi had historically been more forthright, maybe it wouldn't have been successful, but you can see weaknesses in their entire approach throughout all of the Star Wars history and media that we're going to get into is that when they look at being morally flexible or ambiguous with the truth and the way that they present it that's where opportunities for people to seek solace within the dark side or to you know find themselves ambivalent to being involved or engaged so anything else uh, before we go back to the rebel base on this no, I don't think so. I think that about covers it. So with with Yoda being gone and Obi-Wan giving him that final message, uh, he takes off in his X-Wing and heads back to the rebel base. He's going to go see his sister. He's going to see the rest of the rebellion. Yep. So they are having a meeting and they're planning how to take down the second Death Star, which it would appear that they learned from their mistakes with the first Death Star. Uh, and they decide not to have that one point that will blow the whole thing. So they, they need a few more uh, plans as far as destroying the Death Star. So the key players at the Rebel base, uh, besides our main characters, we've got Mon Mothma. As many of you remember, she's the one that says many Bothans died to give us this information. She's a political leader. What else? Yeah, this is the first time we meet Mon Mothma. So Mon Mothma is a former Imperial senator. She's from the planet Chandrilla. Um, and she was part of the original group that formed the Rebel Alliance. So her, Bail Antilles of Alderaan, um, and a few other senators were the original core of the Alliance, and she's essentially the president of the, uh, of the Rebel Alliance. And so she's sort of the political leader. She introduces the fact that they have found the Death Star, that the death, where the Death Star is, and most importantly, that the Emperor himself is present on the Death Star. And then she hands it over to... Admiral Akbar. Admiral Akbar is famous for his line later in the movie, it's a trap. He's the guy with the big bug eyes. Big fish right? head guy, yeah. And uh, so he's the he's a Mon Calamari general. The the Calamari brought a lot of the large ships to the fleet. They're um they're good shipbuilders. And um, he describes what they're going to do about blowing up the Death Star in space. But before they can do that, 
they need to lower the energy shield that surrounds it. So it's basically got shields this time. That was a better design choice. And those shields are being projected from the nearby forest moon of Endor, uh, which General Crix Maydeen, who is the third person we hear talk in this scene, uh, describes how they're going to land a ground troop. So Maydeen, he's basically the special ops general for the rebellion. So he handles, um, you know, kind of ground troops insurgencies and special operations tactics. And so he introduces the concept that they've stolen a shuttle and that they're going to land that shuttle on the ground and try to blow up the shield generator to make an opening for fighters to fly into the Death Star and blow it up. Right. So basically it's, you know, they, they have to get on the moon, they have to blow up the shield generator, and then the pilots in space will blow up the Death Star similarly to how they did in the first movie. That's right. All right. Yep. Uh, just before they leave, uh, Luke comes back from Dagobah. He reunites. He tells Leia, hey, we got to talk, but not right now. Yep. Um, and then the team assembles. That's right. And naturally, our, our existing heroes are in charge of each of the different phases of the operation. So Lando Calrissian is going to lead the space battle. Han Solo and Leia, along with Luke, R2-D2, and C-3PO for some reason, are going to take on the ground mission. And um, and so we kind of have everybody accounted for as the leaders of these various things, even though you could argue that none of them really have the relevant experience. But, you know, they're going to do it anyway because they're the people we know. That, that's true. And also, if they didn't take 3PO with them, we would run into trouble later on in the film. Also, what would he do? He appears to be, you know, just He's always with one of the other main heroes. He's never by himself. That's right. The weird thing about it, the thing that always gives me pause about this, is that they're going into a forest incursion situation. Everybody else is wearing camouflage, including Han Solo over his usual vest and trousers. And yet we bring a shiny gold robot and a shiny blue and white robot that we do not put any camouflage on, neither of whom are designed to really like navigate a forest particularly well. And it seems like when they've got floating hovering robots um, that can also do things like it seems like that would be the people that would be the kind of droids that I would bring on this trip. But, you know, these guys are characters in the show, so we're going to bring them along. So they get into the stolen ship they fly to the moon which is not named endor this moon circles around the planet named endor right that's correct okay and they land and we have one of the most star warsy scenes that i think people remember it's something that is extremely vivid to me from my childhood as i mentioned i watched this movie quite frequently around the holidays at my aunt and uncle's house and so we see the speeder bike chase so they're these like floating motorcycles, basically, and they're going really, really freaking fast throughout the forest. Um, uh, Leia eventually, not even eventually, very shortly, uh, winds up having to ride on the back of Luke's speeder, and uh, they're you know fighting with these stormtroopers. That's right. And so basically, yeah, the situation starts. There were Luke and Leia are on a speeder bike. Luke sort of jumps from one speeder bike to another. They both have them. They both lose their speeder bikes at different points during the during the fight and get separated both from the main attack squad as well as from each other. Right. So Luke and the others, they get captured by some Ewoks. Uh, you know, we were debating the other night what you call a bunch of Ewoks. Are they a pack, a pride, a murder, a flock? I don't know, but a group of Ewoks. Leia 
is found. She gets poked by uh, a stick by one of the other Ewoks. And he's, you know, kind of pokey, but not really as warrior as we would expect him to be because we see them later on being far more aggressive. But he tends to be a lot nicer to Leia. She's a little bit condescending, but not too much um, because she does offer him some food. Yeah, I think she's pretty patronizing, especially for someone who has grown up as like an intergalactic diplomat. She does not treat this dude particularly well, and she doesn't really know. Like, maybe he's super smart. Maybe he's not. But she's very she's very patronizing to him right off the jump. Well, in comparison, if you look at how Luke treated Yoda in Empire when he first landed on Dagobah, he was a real jerk to Yoda. I think in comparison, Leia was a lot nicer to Wicket. Sure, but Luke's just like a random farm boy. She's like, she is... She should know better. She should know better saying. is what I'm saying. She grew up as a diplomat, right? She should probably be slightly more diplomatic, but she's... She's pretty upset at this point because she just, you know, got knocked off her bike and she's separated from her team. But, you know, we see basically her and him, her and Wicket sort of meet, build a little trust, and then they sort of disappear from frame for a little while. But meanwhile, like you said, the rest of our heroes are uh, captured by the Ewoks and taken to their village. Yeah, and what we see happen is that it's likely that Luke, Han, and Chewie are going to be part of an Ewok barbecue party in which they will be the main course. And the the rest of the Ewoks are very excited. They look pretty hungry. Um, yeah. And it's a big village too, right? Yeah, it's a decent-sized village. I mean, you can imagine that there are probably at least, a, you know, a thousand Ewoks living in this treehouse village. And they're, they're, they basically have decided to roast everybody else as uh, food in a feast in honor of C-3PO, who they believe to be some sort of god. And this is the first, the first of a few times that we'll talk about in the future where C-3PO could really help everybody out of a situation, but his protocol programming prevents him from doing something useful. So in this case, he says it's against his programming to impersonate a deity. He could basically have just ordered the Ewoks to free everybody, but he won't do it. And um, the only thing that really gets him out of it is that Luke convinces him to say something about like, free them or I'll use my magic. And then Luke uses the force to hover him uh, over, the, over the Ewoks in his throne until they believe that he is the god that they think he is and then free his friends. Yeah, because they were leaning towards deity, but they hadn't finally like 100% committed. So even though C-3PO was like, these are my friends, please don't eat them. They're like, huh, we're, we're pretty hungry, bro. Uh, let us have this barbecue. And so Luke uses the force. He manipulates this native population. He kind of freaks the heck out of C-3PO. And then just as everyone starts coming to their sense, well, I don't know if they're even coming to their senses. They just decide to stop the barbecue and start the worship of C-3PO. Leia shows up with Wicket and she's like, what are you guys doing? Please stop. Those are my friends. Wicket's like, yeah, listen to the pretty princess lady that I just met who gave me some food. And then everyone just kind of chills out. Yeah. Couple of weird details here. So Leia emerges from like some little treehouse hut. She's wearing a dress that evidently the Ewoks gave her, even though she's literally she's three times their height. Yeah. Her hair is done with like cords in her braids. Uh, she's very clean, and it seems very strange that they're willing to befriend, clothe, and braid her hair, and then a bunch of other folks that look just like her, they're willing to eat them. So you got to question the Ewoks' ethics a little bit. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's all coincidental and it's all very convenient to advance a plot in the way that we need the movie to go. When it's all said and done, these are serious loopholes in continuity as far as, as why they aren't, you know, feasting on her too. Right. So, you know, we've spent this pretty much this whole time talking about our heroes, but we really haven't gotten to, you know, the evil, the bad guys, what our heroes are gearing up for. And so in the background, it's kind of funny. It, it almost seems like it's filler. You know, we've got the Emperor, we've got Vader, we got the Death Star. And this is, you know, they, they kind of pop in and out just to remind us that they're there, but they really aren't doing much with the, with the actual plot of the movie. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple little bits where, you know, Vader arrives on the Death Star and, for, you know, tells them to finish building it. And then the Emperor arrives on the Death Star. And that's really, I mean, we have a couple little dialogue. And the Emperor's them. arrival was news to the people who were working on the Death Star. They didn't know he was actually going to show up to personally oversee the final plans. That's right. And, and this all aligns with the Emperor's plan and some things that he's anticipated are going to happen. But really, for the most part, yeah, like you said, it's, it's just sort of background filler to set up the final battle. But it really has nothing to do. It doesn't advance the plot until everybody shows up at the at the final scenes yeah and, and so kind of the last thing that takes us into act three is that you know luke realizes um that vader senses him so vader senses luke luke senses vader censoring him sensing him not censoring um and, and so you know then luke decides okay well now i'm endangering the mission and so luke decides that the best thing for everybody is for luke to turn himself in after telling leia that she and he are siblings and they're the children of Darth Vader, which is very appalling to Leia, leading to the most cringy line in all of Star Wars. When he reveals that they're brother and sister, she says, somehow twin I, brother and sister, twin then. brother and sister. She reveals somehow I've known somehow I've always known. And I just go back to the number of times that she kisses him in a not brother and sister way. And I wonder what goes what goes on on Alderaan? Like, what did you grow up with? Yeah, hopefully it's not a cultural thing. And it was just a line that was thrown in without too much thinking about it. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, I, I'm not a twin. You're not a twin. But I, I've heard that twins, you know, have this special connection where they like know what they're thinking way more often. So I, I think it's unusual that they were spending all this time plotting the you know retrieval of han and freeing him from tattooing that at no point with their like twin connectivity was leia ever able to sense this and the whole thing just it, it doesn't really line up with what we um have come to expect from star wars lore moving outside of the original trilogy so now we're in Act 3 with, with our three battles. And this is, you know, the stereotypical, the good guys start out winning, then they start out losing, then they win again. Big celebration. Um, so we got the ground battle, we got the space battle, and we got the Emperor's Throne Room. Um, and I, I think that the Emperor's Throne Room is, is by far the most exciting battle. That's right. Yeah, I think the other two battles are pretty much your, your standard sci-fi win-lose-win format and probably not really worth all that much more discussion. But what goes on in the throne room is really interesting and really sets the tone for it's it's funny that things that happen in that scene set the tone for both future and like prequel movies and sequel movies and all sorts of other media that surround it but it's basically um darth vader brings luke in front of the emperor the emperor gives a big speech and he tries to induce luke 
to use his anger to start to touch the dark side and fall over to the dark side. And he's willing, it, it appears that the emperor is even willing to sacrifice himself to get Luke to turn, which he's not really, but he offers Luke the, the ability to attack him. He shows Luke how his fleet is being destroyed. He tells Luke that he knows that there are rebels on the, on the, on the planet and that they're going to lose their battle. He tells him that he knows that Vader's his father. He tells him all sorts of things to just rile Luke up. And Luke resists and resists and resists and resists. And then eventually he snaps. Well, he snaps because his feelings, as the Emperor point out, that his feelings betray him. And they have indeed betrayed Leia as well. And they're like, well, oh, you got a sister? Well, then you know what? Maybe we'll just kill you and take your sister instead. And that's when his rage comes through. Yeah. But he starts a lightsaber fight with Vader. And it's kind of going back and forth. And then eventually Luke says he senses that Vader doesn't want to kill him, that Vader doesn't want to kill his own son. And he stops the fight again until, as you point out, they they notice that he has a sister. And that's when Luke really goes into a rage and mirrors the part, the ending part of the fight in Empire Strikes Back, except he plays the part of Vader and Vader plays the part of Luke, where Luke is a very aggressive fighting style. He starts to batter Vader, he knocks him down, and eventually he cuts his hand off. Which, now we got one-handed guy fighting one-handed guy. Yeah. And Luke realizes in that moment that he is on the path to dark side. He is going to, he is becoming Darth Vader, and he throws aside his lightsaber and tells the Emperor that he's lost and that he will never turn. And the Emperor responds with, so be it, Jedi, and then throws the Force Lightning. And this is the first time we see Force Lightning, and Luke did not see it coming. You got to wonder where Yoda was on this one. Like, why didn't Yoda tell him, hey, by the way, watch out, because Vader doesn't need a weapon. He can shoot force lightning at you, but nobody told him. That's true. That's true. And I think the other thing is, is that we see the Emperor has no qualms about fighting unfairly. That That's the way that he fights. And his fighting style is so much more powerful than everyone else's combined. Um, and he relishes in the suffering around him. And you really see that come to light. I remember as a child seeing this movie for the first and second and third time and, and always being scared there. You know, uh, I'm not saying I eventually got desensitized. I think I just grew up and realized, you know, it, it wasn't as scary as it was. But that was something that to me was terrifying. He cackled and he relished in others' pain. Um, and as we go through this fight scene, you know, the entire time that Luke was talking to Vader, he keeps calling him father, which I guess is, you know, what maybe he could call him. But I feel like that's just a weird name to call someone that you've spent virtually no time with, even though he may have been, you know, biologically your father. It just it seems like an odd name. It's extremely formal, although I don't think dad or daddy would have been appropriate either. That, um, would, that would have been weird. Yeah, that, that the whole uh, relationship is unusual at best but the vader's just standing there watching his son get killed and there's a number of different things that we could think of as to what's going through vader's head there's even the question as to why he wanted luke to come on the ship in the first place you know obviously the emperor was like he will come to us so the emperor is thinking you know luke might be stronger than vader and if so luke could kill vader and then he's got a new younger healthier apprentice which, you know, we, we kind of see a little bit of that happening What in the plans being revealed. We also potentially see the idea that, well, you know what, if Vader kills Luke, at least there's no more threat um, as far as Jedi powers go. So 
either way, in the Emperor's eyes, he either gets Luke or he doesn't, but it's still probably a win. What he didn't expect was potentially the idea that, you know, Vader had already suggested to Luke, let's overthrow the Emperor and you and me run the galaxy, presumably as, you know, Dark Lords of the Sith, but, you know, we, we still have that. Um, and the the fourth option is actually what really happens, is that that little bit of good that might still be left within Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader, comes to comes to the surface and he doesn't want to see his son electrocuted by a madman that's right and so he picks up the emperor and throws him down one of what are the many bottomless pits in imperial architecture and i think we're going to do a whole 30 minute podcast on bottomless pits why you love them um but there is one in the emperor's throne room and vader throws the emperor down the bottomless pit gets a little bit force lightning in the process um, and that's not really great for his long-term health. Yeah, because if you remember in A New Hope, Obi-Wan suggests that Vader is more machine than man at this point, and that is true. All that electricity running through all of that machinery is not going to be good enough to keep what little bit of man was in there still alive, and, and so that uh, force lightning, you know, that, that fries all the circuits, and, you know, Vader's on his last uh, last few breaths here and right simultaneous with that is when the rebel ships break through and destroy the death star's main reactor so we basically at the same time the emperor dies we have um the death star starting to come apart and so luke grabs the uh grabs darth vader and makes for the nearest shuttle bay uh to try to find a shuttle and escape and you know really what's interesting is that here's this guy who was not present at all in his life uh, Luke decides he can't leave him there. And I, I think that that winds up being important in other Star Wars movies because, you know, we, we need that symbolism of the mask. But, you know, we we have them escape our friends down on uh, the moon. They, they're celebrating and in comes. And so basically the, the movie ends with a big celebration. So... Um, Luke has a brief funeral and burns Darth Vader's suit on a pyre after having a little a little like death speech with him. Um, the The interesting thing about the death speech at the very end of, of Darth Vader's life, he asks Luke to take his mask off so he can look at him with his own eyes. And so Luke takes the mask mask off and it's this sort of shriveled um, human face beneath it. Yeah, he's uh, kind of bluish gray. He's not doing well. Yeah, he's not great. He hasn't seen the sun in a while. He needs a tan. Um, the actor who plays that face, I believe his name is Sebastian Shaw, is neither the person who walks around in the Vader suit, whose name is David Prowse, nor is it the person who voices Darth Vader, who of course is James Earl Jones. It's a third guy, and poor David Prowse just gets to walk around in the suit and never gets his face shown. For some reason, for the brief scene where they've got Vader's face, they bring in a different guy. And then in the original movie... When they get to the final celebration, we see the force ghosts of Yoda, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and Anakin, and is Sebastian Shaw until the second special edition release following the original trilogy where they replace Sebastian Shaw with Hayden Christensen, who plays Anakin Skywalker in the prequel trilogy. That's a lot of Vaders. A lot there of Anakins. There are a Anakins. lot of Vaders. There are a lot of Anakins and there are a lot of Vaders. And in fact... There's yet another Vader in Rogue One, which we'll talk about sometime in the future. Um, there's a scene with Darth Vader, and it's yet a different person wearing the Vader suit. So there are, have been at least six people that have played Darth Vaders th 
throughout the uh, the saga. But only one of them gets to come back as a force ghost in the final celebration, and ultimately that winds up being Hayden Christensen's That's Anakin. Right. Yep. All right. So he, he kind of looks back at, you know, his mentors, and, you know, I, I don't entirely know why we get to think that Anakin Skywalker's been saved at this point, why he gets to be back with the light side of the force he, he did a lot of bad things I, I don't know if this is some kind of nod to catholicism or or what the story is as far as asking for forgiveness but he does find redemption and that's important um we also uh find out that you know leia is going to tell han that uh luke's her brother because han's like oh go be with luke i understand you guys have this connection i can't compete with that blah 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 and Leia's like no dude it's not like that um he's my brother and then han's like phew because i'm really yeah. into you so but he also appears to recognize how gross it was what their relationship was like because he bo- he has both this look of relief and then also like wait a minute yeah, yeah yeah he's been around the universe a while um i want to jump back real fast on the force ghost thing just the in canon explanation of why anakin gets to be a force ghost is that anakin was conceived by the midichlorians and as a result when he died his he was always part of both the living force and the cosmic force and so he gets to live uh, his personality gets to live in the Force because it was created by the Force. Because otherwise he would have had to do some crazy Jedi training about learning how to become a Force ghost, which he obviously never did because he pledged his allegiance to Sidious, and, and there we have it. That's right, yeah. Um. So this is the ending everyone can get behind. Our heroes win, good beats evil, you know, just everyone wins right except the bad guys yeah i mean at this point right uh, as far as anybody knows the sith are dead um the one remaining jedi lives there's a second potential jedi and his sister leia um hence return of the jedi i suppose i I feel like that may be an ambitious title they're like return of the jedi is like the one jedi that existed in the previous movie is still there um but yeah and the, the good guys have won the rebellion has won the empire has fallen presumably they can reestablish a democratic government um you know none of the good guys really died it's a very like 80s style resolution to a story arc and it's very it's it's one that yeah it's non-controversial and really nobody can complain about it yeah and anyone who along the way was ethically flexible they wind up at the end of this trilogy being committed to good so you know han solo was a smuggler chewy was his sidekick or vice versa whichever way you want to interpret that but now they're, they're clearly committed to good the ewoks who are warriors who are gonna you know eat these guys uh they're committed to you know partnering with you know their foreign invaders um but you know it, it, it's just everyone gets to the place that we want them to get to so one of the things that we talked about uh, on our last pod was why does Empire get the rap of being the best movie? And we said it's because Jedi concludes the whole story arc very favorably. And then that takes everything that we saw in Empire, which was extreme character development, plot development, learning so much more about the Force. Um, most of the best lines that are, you know, what did you say? The most Star Warsy part of Star Wars? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's... All of a sudden, now it's so much more elevated. Now, Jedi, many people have said could be the best one uh, because it's where good truly beats evil. Um, and it's where the, the love is, you know, f- 
finalized between Han and Leia. We we know they're going to be together. But why would you say that Empire gets to take the the title of best? Uh, I think that like n- nothing new is revealed for the most part in Return of the Jedi. Like we reveal the Luke and the Luke and Leia relationship is sort of the big revelation of the movie. But everything that happens in Jedi is just is either a redux of what happened in A New Hope or a continuation of things that happen in Empire. Right. The relationship between Han and Han and Leia is not new. It just gets finalized. The relationship between Luke and Vader, not really all that new, gets finalized. The good defeats evil is a sort of a is sort of the expected conclusion. Um, you know, the fact that there was a big target that they had to blow up and that there were battles, not particularly new. So while it's like, it's a great movie and I love it and I love watching it, it's, there's, there's not as much depth and there's not as much new information presented. And that is reasonable because it's the conclusion of a trilogy. And I think the thing that, that, that it allows Empire to be the best is that it does wrap up all of those storylines from Empire neatly. That I think that if there were a different, set of resolutions to those or if return of the jedi had gone in a different way it probably would have either cheapened the things that happened in in empire or just made them confusing and so because it's a satisfying ending it sort of doesn't elevate itself but elevates the previous movie now from a visual effects standpoint absolutely the best thing they learned a lot in the previous two movies and they did a great job you know from you know costuming to consistency to you know lore and ethos and all sorts of things it's very good, but but because it's a capper on the previous movie, the previous movie ends up getting uh, a, it has more depth and it's a it's a better movie as a result. Yeah, and I think that the throne room fight scene is the best fight scene. Um, you know, we we have this incredible battle that you know really the success of the rebellion is going to be what happens on the ground and in the throne room. And when we we see that happen and unfold, you know, yeah, there's an important battle that happens between Vader and Luke on um, Cloud City, but I, I don't think that it's as meaningful. So, you know, there are aspects of Jedi that excel at beyond where the other two movies do, but I, I think on the whole, Empire really, you know, takes the prize for the best one. Yep. Um, and then whether or not this is controversial, we basically realize at this point we don't need episodes 7, 8, and 9. No, I mean, 7, 8, and 9 tell an entirely new story, but and, and I know that they purport to be the conclusion of the Skywalker trilogy, but at, in, a, in a lot of ways, or I mean, so the, sorry, the Skywalker saga in general, in a lot of ways, the Skywalker saga has reached a logical conclusion. Like it's, it, you know, the they have defeated the Sith, um, they have established that good has won. You could say the force is back in balance, though. We'll, we'll talk about that when we talk about the prophecy of the force or the prophecy of the one. But I think that this sets up the prequel trilogies quite nicely. I think it, ex- it opens the door to a whole bunch of things to explore in the past. Which is really clear, though, because they're called episodes four, five, and six for a reason. Yeah, Lucas right. truly always envisioned having episodes one, two, and three. And in fairness, believe he wrote screenplays or outlines for episodes seven, eight, and nine. Yeah, that's right. But the outlines that he wrote for seven, eight, and nine are not what was actually produced. Um, and so I think that I think that going forward, you know, the story sort of broadens out from here and. I think that the story that they told is probably different than the story that everyone expected. But I think that this point sets up a clear need 
for episodes one, two, and three to explain how do we get to this point. Yeah, and, and you know, we'll tackle episodes one, two, and three shortly. I, I think what's really interesting is seeing just the short period of time between episode three, which ends on Empire Day, and where we pick up in A New Hope. We've got 18, 19 years, and how much can really deteriorate, which, you know, kind of bringing it back to, you know, looking at history, you know, how how do we get here? How do we, you know, move forward? What does it look like? And just being cognizant of the fact that things can change rapidly um, when, you know, forces involved uh, have an agenda that is not going to be beneficial to everyone. So a- any takeaways, Kevin, as respects marriage from Jedi? I don't know. I think, uh, you know, don't make out with your brother, I guess, becomes sort of relevant. Yeah, that's not come up in our relationship. So no. that's good. Yeah. No, I'm, I mean, I don't know. Nothing really, really jumps out of me. What about you? Not really, no. I, I mean, I think that there's an aspect of family that's important, but I don't know if I would necessarily say that, you know, there's something marriage or relationship specific. Uh, Han and Leia's relationship, you know, we do see them finally get together and we know that that's going to be the end. You know, they're, they're together forever or to the best of our knowledge at this point. Um, but we don't really see like that they're going to get married. They're going to have a life together. We don't know that. We just, you know, kind of assume at this point. Um, and, and there's no big takeaways as far as the bickering. I, I will say that she does turn it around on him. He, you know, he tells her that he loves her and she turns around and says, I know. And so that just goes to show that they've got this balance between them, um, that they are equal partners in this relationship. So uh, other than that, that's really the only takeaway I have is that, you know, marriage is partnership. You have to be equal. And that that's the only aspect there. But maybe I'm missing something. No, I don't think so. I think that this movie had a lot of other things going on and it really didn't focus on relationships that much. And there's really not much for us to take from it other than I guess as we wrap up today, I get to say I love you. I know.